So, switching gears a little bit. Last week was the, our 4th of July weekend, and so we read bits of the Declaration of Independence in here, and we were talking about fighting for the freedom to claim our unalienable rights. And uh, it's really interesting when you take a look back at the founding documents, so these are 246 years old now, or at least the Declaration is, and to see the sentiments in that prologue that are just, they could have been written yesterday, uh, given the difference in the, in the tone and the language, of course. But the idea here is that people don't change. Our technology changes, but people don't. And the sentiments and the needs and, and the responses that were 240 years ago or 2,400 years ago are going to read just like yesterday's news. The people are the same. And so this is great news for us because we can actually learn something from history. We can learn something from the people that have gone before us. If it weren't so, if we didn't have any connection or kinship, then we wouldn't be able to. But this is what's going on. 246 years ago, as a group, these colonists decided that it was time to actually do something to gain the freedom to be able to claim their unalienable rights, which they defined as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what we were talking about, and what Jefferson first and what said in that prologue, was that people will suffer whatever oppression they're suffering, whatever lack of freedom that they are suffering, for as long as they possibly can, before they will overcome the inertia, before they will overcome the fear of the unknown to actually move for that fundamental change actually move into some sort of revolution. And there's good wisdom in that. The revolution is always going to make it worse before it gets better. But sometimes you have to make that change, and you have to move into that scary place. And we talked about how macro mirrors the micro, and that what is true for groups of people is also true for each one of us. And each one of us has to face the same exact thing that the Declaration is talking about in terms of our own interior rev revolution. This is what Jesus is all about. Jesus is about us getting to the point that we will wage an interior revolution, that we will work and do everything that it takes to find fundamental change in ourselves. And it's just as frightening and just as scary, and it will get worse before it gets better. Because a revolution is always a deconstruction. The revolution is always a tearing down of everything that has been familiar, everything that has held our lives, held our security, held our sense of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. All of that needs to be leveled so that we can see what is really in front of us and then move forward from there. And so for each one of us, there's going to be that same delay. There's going to be that same inertia. There's going to be that same resistance to doing the work of this interior revolution out of fear, out of misinformation, though, as well as the fear. Whenever I hear that word, misinformation, I think of Casablanca. Remember the movie, Casablanca? There's <laughs> that one scene where uh, Renault asks Bogie's character, why did you come to Casablanca? Why don't you go back to the United States? He says, what did you, abscond with the church's proceeds? Did you run off with a senator's wife? I'd like to think you killed a man. It's the romantic in me, he says. So why did you, why did you, why did you come to Casablanca? And Bogey, in his deadpan way, says, well, it was for my health. I came for the waters. Waters? We're in a desert. I was misinformed. <laughs> One of the great scenes of all time. We have been misinformed. 
We came for the waters. It's a desert, you know. How we've been misinformed is that we were never told. We were never told to find freedom enough from the fear. And the fear can be in the form of this, or the freedom can be in the form of the pain that we are facing at the moment, the trauma that we're facing, and also the trust that we are beginning to grow in our teachers, in Jesus, in God, in relationships, and the conviction that is growing in us. But we were never told that we needed to find freedom enough from our fear. We never were told that this freedom is essential to taking those first risky steps on this interior revolution, on this road, this path, this way of Jesus to fundamental change. We were never told that freedom was the key. Freedom was the goal. Many times we've done that exercise in here. What's the goal of your spiritual life? Why are, why are you here trying to uh, live some sort of spiritual path? And people will come up with all sorts of answers. But Jesus says it right in John 8. Take a look. John 8, verse 31. He says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, and what does that really mean? Well, the word is a much more expansive word. Melta in Aramaic doesn't mean just word as we think of it. But it's a concept. It's more than a concept. It can be an entire worldview. It can be the essence of everything that animates a person. If you continue in this, Jesus says, if you continue living the way I'm living, relating the way I relate, loving the way I love as you've seen me for these years, if you will continue in this, then you are really my followers, my Talmudim, those who are letting go of everything of their own identity in order to imprint the identity of the master. We don't have an analog for Talmudim in our culture. Not just disciple, but this person who's willing to lay down their lives, literally everything, in order to follow the master. If you continue in my way of life, then you are truly those who will lay down their lives in order to follow me. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It doesn't get much clearer than that, but we gloss over that. We don't see because we haven't been reinforced in it. Our churches haven't taught us that this is what it's all about. Without the freedom, we won't take the first steps. If we don't take the first steps, we will never have the conviction we will never see the truth. There has to be just enough pain. There has to be just enough conviction, just enough trust maybe in the teacher, if not in anything larger, but at least in the teacher. That's why Jesus says, if you'll just continue with me, it doesn't matter if you haven't trusted the rest of it all, but just trust me enough. And if you will continue to follow you will experience the truth of this love that has no degree. You'll experience the truth of this love of the Father that I'm trying to show you that you can't earn because you can't lose it. It just self-exists. You will learn this truth, and that truth will bring the freedom from the deeper fears, the existential fears, the fears of the world and life and everything else, so that you can claim your unalienable right to this love, he's saying all of that right here in this simple line. But of course, there's another catch. There's always a catch, right? What is this freedom? Freedom means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And Jesus doesn't take the time to define it here, at least in the way we would like it defined. But it is defined in the New Testament if we're paying attention. 
And of course, the, the hearers, the people that he is talking to right here, they misunderstand. Now, these are not his friends. These are not his followers. He's talking to those who are antagonistic toward him. At the end of this little pericope, at the end of this little story, they pick up stones and want to stone him to death, and he slips out. But these people who are listening to him, at verse 33, they answer and they say, freedom, you know, the truth will make you free. He says, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, then you will be free indeed. So they have misunderstood. And they took the most common understanding of freedom that we all have. Just physical freedom. Political freedom is the way that they're, they're understanding it. But this first line, we are descendants of Abraham and we've not yet been enslaved by anybody, is absolutely false. I mean, here they are speaking from under the boot of Rome at the time. And before Rome, it was the Greeks. And before Greeks, it was the Babylonians. And before the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians. And before the Assyrians, it was the Egyptians. Come on. Since the time of Abraham, Hebrews and Israel had spent much more time enslaved by foreign powers than they ever were as free and independent state. And yet they say this to him. Now, maybe they believed it. Maybe they're gaming him. It's hard to know. Maybe in their pride, they felt entitled by Abraham to this sovereignty that while not real politically, was somehow real spiritually, it's impossible to know. But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, ignores them completely as far as that goes. And he goes right to the heart of it. He says, those who are enslaved to sin, those who commit sin are enslaved to sin. Now, we have to understand sin here, because sin is not just unlawful behavior. We seem to boil it, want to boil it down to that, make it a moral choice. It's good or it's evil, it's lawful or it's unlawful, it's sinful or it's not. But it's not about unlawful behavior. It's about the state of being separated. It's about the state of missing the mark of God's perfect unity. When we are less than unified, when we are separated from one another in any way, psychologically, emotionally, then we are in a state of sin. And we are enslaved to that sin, to that separation. And the slave is not part of the family. As he says, the slave doesn't abide in the house forever. The son does, the family does, but the slave doesn't. But when you are freed by the son, then you are freed indeed because you're brought into the family. And it's not that you're not a part of the family before. We're all a part of the family. We don't all live as if we're part of the family because we don't yet know the truth that makes us free. You see how this is working in a circle? Jesus is trying to get us to take the first steps, to trust him enough to take the first steps that will end in the truth that will free us from the fear that only perfect love, our unalienable right, can cast off can let go. The Son is bringing us a very different kind of freedom than we're used to thinking about. And his followers understood this. Let's take a look at these remaining verses here, if you're, if you're looking at your insert, 1 Corinthians 7, 22. So this is Paul. He says, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave. Okay, so if you were a slave and you were called to the Lord, if you became a follower as a slave, 
then this person is now a freedman of the Lord. So if you started as a slave, you become a freedman. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. All right, then what's going on here? See, Paul is saying whatever status you are, free or slave, submission of servitude continues in our relationship with God. And when he says slave, we need to think of something that is not present in our culture, and that is of a bondsman or an indentured servant. These were people who voluntarily put themselves into the house of another person to pay off a debt or to pay off somebody else's debt. They couldn't pay it physically. They don't get paid for their work. They're paying off their debt by being a servant, a bond servant, a domestic slave. This is the image that Paul is, trying, is, is counting on in the minds of his hearers who understood such things culturally, of course, because we are putting ourselves into that same kind of relationship with God and, by extension, with each other, voluntarily submitting, taking on servitude to pay off debt, but not debt in just in sense of sin, but in recognition to who we really are in God. He continues a couple of chapters later in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So he's declaring his freedom, but he's volunteering his servitude. He's always come together. At Romans 6.22, Paul still, But now that you have been set free from sin and, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, there's something about submitting. There's something about giving up our freedom that we have just realized that we have that is positive, that is essential, that leads to this life eternal. And eternal life in Aramaic means life that is continually and everlastingly alive, new, Never boring, always fresh. Not just that continues forever, but that is always alive. That's the idea. And there's something about this voluntary submission that makes life alive. At Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, don't use your liberation as an excuse for your own gratification, but to realize that you are perfectly free to give it away, to give your freedom away to another person, to serve them. Peter puts an even finer point on it at 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Wait a minute. Almost like a, one of those discordant kind of, hit the wrong note there. Honor the emperor? Really? The, the oppressor? The one who is, has their boot? But he goes even further in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. Paul says the same thing. If you're a slave, stay a slave. 
If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. You know, don't upset the apple cart. Now, they understood that the time was short and Jesus was coming back soon. They wanted everyone to fight their interior revolution, not worry about social revolutions at this point. But wow, even so, right? How free can you be under the oppression of an unreasonable slaveholder? How free are you under the boot of an abusive oppressor? And you're supposed to remain in submission? The freedom that Jesus is talking about, the freedom that his followers are trying to get across to us, is paradoxical. And we have to understand that everything in spiritual life is paradoxical. This is why wisdom teachers and Jesus teach in paradox. They're trying to get us to break through the logical, single-line, logical process of our thoughts to be able to embrace something that is larger, something that cannot be resolved in our physical lives. But in the unresolution, in letting things stand to move through them, teaches us something that we can't learn otherwise. It's paradoxical. It's experienced and it's expressed in servitude and submission. This is freedom that's experienced and expressed in servitude and submission. So, understanding that, how are we free? I mean, who's really free after all, right? I was flipping channels just a couple of days ago and I came upon the I was going to say a midnight clear, but that wouldn't be right. Someone was thinking that, right? I know you were. <laughs> I came upon the first Jack Reacher movie. Have anyone of you seen the first Jack Reacher movie with Tom Cruise? Okay. If you don't know the story at all, Jack Reacher is an ex-military, um, you know, superhero type, right? Uh, he spent most of his career in, in the army as a, as a military policeman. He was a crack investigator. And at a certain point, he just got sick of it all and he discharged himself. He quit the military. But when he came back to the United States from abroad, he disappears into the ether and he becomes a ghost. He's completely off the grid. He hasn't got a, a driver's license. He hasn't got a passport. He hasn't got a credit card. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't pay bills. The only thing that he owns are the clothes literally on his back and the cash that he gets from his pension that is wired wherever he happens to be at any one time. And when his clothes gets dirty, when his clothes gets dirty, when his clothes get dirty, <laughs> agreement of subject and verb, um, when the clothes get dirty, he just throws them out and buys new ones. You know, he's got one set of clothes. This is how he lives. And of course, every town he goes in, he gets caught up in some crazy thing. And this is what the movies are all about. But here is this guy, right? And he is now involved in this, this murder mystery that's happening in the course of the movie. And the lawyer who is trying to defend the one who is the patsy and is accused of it. And she finally thinks he's got them all figured out. And it's, ah, oh, it makes perfect sense now. You can't handle the real world. You can't handle living life as it's, as it's presented. And so this is why you do what you do and why you live the way you live. And they're standing in her office, which is halfway up a high rise. And he says, he draws her to the, come to the window, come to the window. She doesn't want to come. She, he takes her by the arm and, and says, look out this window. And what she's looking into is the windows of the building across the street where you can see the offices and the people in the offices. And in those offices, it's kind of a sickly blue light, and it looks really icky, you know. But at that point, and let me read what happens. Look out the window. Tell me what you see. 
She says, I see the same things I see every day. And he says, well, imagine you've never seen it. Imagine you've spent your whole life in other parts of the world being told every day you're defending freedom. And finally you decide you've had enough. Time to see what you've given up your whole life for. Maybe get some of that freedom for yourself. Look at the people. Now tell me, which ones are free? Free from debt, anxiety, stress, fear, failure, indignity, betrayal? How many wish that they were born knowing what they know now? Ask yourself, how many would do the same things the same way over again? And how many would live their lives like me? So Jack sees himself as free of all encumbrance, physical, relational, financial, legal, even moral. He does whatever he thinks is right according to his own code, whether it flies in the face of anyone else's morality, anyone else's legality. It doesn't matter to him. He seeks justice in his own way and does exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it in the way that he wants to do it. And that to him is freedom. But is Jack really free? As Jesus would define freedom, is Jack really free? Maybe. But it's not because he has nothing, no possessions. He sees other people as unfree. Are they unfree? Well, maybe they are. But not because they have mortgages and have a job and have families and have little cubicles to work in. It has nothing to do with that. What Jack really is, is a very entertaining overreaction to modern life. I have to say, we could probably call him Jack Overreacher. How about that? Mm. He overreaches. He has overreacted to what he sees as the unfreedom, the oppression of modern life. Because if you really imagine Jack's life, imagine living the life that we just described. Now, each movie centers on a sequence of action events that look really exciting and entertaining. But think about it. In between all that time, it's just one motel room to another, one bus ride to another. No clothes, no friends, no family, no connections of any kind. Keeping yourself completely off the grid. He is completely alone. Most of his life is just going to be drifting. Is that free? Well, that depends on how Jack experiences his life beyond the speeches that he gives, just as it is with the cubicle rats. How do they experience their life, even as they show up for work every day in their little space, doing the same thing all the time? The question we need to ask ourselves, however our life looks to us, is what is freedom? How do we know if we are free from something? How do we really know that? Now, sitting there right now, what I'd like you to do is just become aware of your breathing. You're breathing in, you're breathing out. You've been doing that all along. You've been doing it while you were asleep. You're doing it all day long. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here right now. And yet, until I called your attention to it, you weren't aware of it. Unless you have a respiratory condition, unless you have asthma, unless something is blocking, we don't think about our breathing. Now, think about your food. 
You think about your food all the time, don't you? I mean, we have to buy it. We have to prepare it. We have to think about the menu. We, have, we were just talking about, you know, we're going to send around a clipboard, and you're going to write down your dishes that you're going to bring to the potluck. We think about food all the time. Since the Garden of Eden, when God told Moses, <laughs> when God told Adam, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to get your bread. We have been working for our food ever since. Air is free. Food is not. How do we know the difference? That which you think about the least is what you are free of the most. And conversely, what we think about all the time is what enslaves us, what impresses us, what limits our freedom. We can look at it that way, that what is free is what we don't have to plan for, think on, prepare for. I want to read you one page, and so it's a little on the longish side. So just pretend you're driving in traffic and you're listening to an audio book right now for a minute. This is a page from my book, The Fifth Way, but I think I can't say it any better than this, to try to get across to you this idea of freedom, because if we don't define it for ourselves, it's going to be impossible for us to know what it is, the goal that Jesus is trying to get us toward. The things from which we are most free are those things we think about the least. Conversely, the more we think or worry about something, the more that thing imprisons us, owns us, enslaves us. When you lie awake at night worrying and planning over your finances or a big test, a promotion, a relationship gone sour, that thing owns you, has you in chains. But when that thing is resolved to the point that you sleep through the night and go through your day without giving it a second thought, you are liberated, free, at least from that one thing. Yeshua said at Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, sometimes mammon is translated as wealth or money, but mammon actually means much more than that. Mammon is the anglicized version of the Aramaic word mammona, which was the name of a Mesopotamian goddess of wealth, which then became synonymous with the personification of greed and avarice, the piling up or accumulation of external things that eventually defines the person doing the accumulating. It seems that in the compulsive desire to possess, the possessor becomes possessed by the very objects of his or her desire, defined by them. Mamona is the opposite of freedom, because by definition, a person in the throes of a compulsive need is always thinking and planning and manipulating everything and everyone to get the things they desire. This is why Yeshua says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Kingdom is freedom personified. Mamona is greed personified. Greed is enslavement, imprisonment by the objects of desire. How does a slave enter freedom until and unless the chains are removed? What we think about the most is what defines us possesses us, limits our freedom. Now, what do we think about the most? Money or lack of it? Our jobs, our families, children, wives, husbands, a love relationship or lack of it? 
our hobbies, sports, church, religion, politics, charitable, charitable activities and causes, our next drink or fix or sexual encounter, God, whatever it may be, these things possess us and limit our freedom. But is a loss of freedom always a bad thing? We Westerners automatically place our personal freedom as a highest good. But some of the items on this list I just mentioned are also very good things by which to be beholden. Are we really supposed to be completely free? Free from all law, all responsibility, all obligation. To be completely free is to be completely alone. If I gave my wife the same amount of thought and concern I give my breathing, I wouldn't have a wife. Any relationship that is given no conscious thought, planning, tending, budgeting, or allocation of time and resources would be indistinguishable from loneliness. Just as we voluntarily trade freedom for security by submitting to laws and taxes and other restrictions in society, so we also trade freedom for relationship by submitting to the responsibilities and obligations that love requires. Greater love has no, has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said this at John 15. And though we immediately connect this image to his death on the cross, laying down our lives for our friends and neighbors carries even deeper and ongoing significance. As hard as it may be to willingly die for another, it may be even harder to live for another by laying down everything that has come to define our lives, that we have worked so hard to acquire. There is no greater love than to be, than to be willing to lay down the very things we think about the most for the sake of someone else to allow thoughts about the welfare of others to completely displace any thought about our own welfare and the treasures we amass to sustain it. To trade freedom for the mutual bondedness, submission, and connection of any relationship of love is a very good trade. So if we want to be free, like Jack, we must be willing to strip everything away. This is Jesus' way, this way of descent, this way of dying to self so that others may live and live better because of us. But unlike Jack, we don't stay there. We don't stay in that place, possessionless, alone, for the sake of freedom, not everything that limits our freedom is bad. Some things that limit our freedom are absolutely essential. And we need to know the difference. So how do we know the difference? How do we know freedom is really ours? How do you know that you have freedom? Now with any possession, you know this possession is yours if you can give it away, free and clear. No strings attached. That's how you know something's yours. I can give you my car. It's all paid off. I can give it to you. All I have to do is sign the paper and it's yours. I can't give you Marion's car because it's leased. The bank still owns it. 
You know the difference? Now, don't go coming asking for my car afterwards, but you get the point that I'm making here. If I really own something, if I possess it free and clear, I can give it away just as easily. That's how we know we have something in the process of giving it away. How do you know that you have power? When you can empower somebody else. How do you know that you have presence? When you say with your presence that this is the most important place you can be and you give your presence away. How do you know that you have love? It's only in the flow of love out to somebody else that you know that you have it. And how do you know that you have life? When you give it away. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. This is the opposite way of looking at life. We want to amass things out of our fear and hold on to them. The truth of the matter is that we only know we possess something and that it doesn't possess us or limit our freedom when we let it flow outward to somebody else. How do we know we have freedom? When we voluntarily submit to someone else. That's freedom in action. To serve gratefully. And this is the paradox between freedom and submission. This is the paradox between Jack Reacher and the cubicle rat. We have to look at freedom in a different way. Not in the ways that we normally do, externally, from the outside in, in our circumstances. The secret of life, if you will, is to be able to stop seeing either or all the time. To stop seeing freedom or slavery in our circumstances but find that liminal space between the poles. That freedom is not being attached or identified with either our possessions or our lack of them, right? It's something entirely different. When we are not attached to the possessions, not that we have them, then we are free. And once we stop obsessively thinking about the things that we have or don't have, then we become free to be fully present to whatever is in our path. And once freedom from fear is coming from attachment, we can let that go as well. The freedom from fear that comes allows us to let go. Either defending what we have or don't have, or striving to acquire what we desire, then we can truly be of service. We can let our resources flow. A couple of quotes. No one outside ourselves can rule us inwardly. When we know this, we become free. No one outside ourselves can rule us inwardly. When we know this, we can become free. Gautama Buddha. And from Nelson Mandela, For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Freedom is something different than we typically look at. We are truly servants when we're truly present to those in our path. And we're truly present when we're not thinking of anything else, any agenda, other than who or what is right in front of us at the time. What we think of most limits our freedom most. 
Now, if our thoughts are not isolating or separating us or pulling us away, then there's nothing broke. Don't fix it. But I want you to think about this. What do you think about the most? What do you think about the most that always separates you and pulls you out of connection with each other in the moment that you're in? It's our thoughts themselves. We are constantly thinking about our thoughts. And that pulls us out of presence. It separates us. That's the sin that Jesus is talking about. The separation, the less than unity, because we're inside the egoic bubble. We're inside our own heads, constantly processing those thoughts. This is why Jesus says, don't judge. Our thoughts are judging by definition. That's the way our minds work. They're comparing, contrasting this and that, either or. And as long as we're doing that, we're not present to the moment that is right in front of us. This is why Jesus' way, the contemplative way, is to learn to step aside our thoughts, to learn to step aside our egoic consciousness, to learn to lay down our lives, lay down that consciousness, lay down that worldview and everything we think we know that keeps us separated from each other in the name of each other in terms of learning what real presence is all about in terms of actually experiencing the freedom of being outside that bubble so that we can be connected and inside someone else's bubble. Now, I don't know how this is falling on your ears. I was having this conversation with someone, and he says, ah, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just, I got to call BS here. Isn't it sad that people talk to pastors that way? <laughs> actually, it's great. More people should do it. If we all did that, you know, from our earliest age, we'd be in a lot better shape right now, wouldn't we? You know, just go for it. I mean, what in the world are you talking about? So he's calling BS on me. (laughs) And I'm not going to debate him in abstention or anything like that. And I'm not saying or trying to imply that he's wrong because he's following his own path. And we say in here all the time, you know, if, if everybody's agreeing with me, then I'm the only one who's thinking. I mean, that's not the way that this should be. I'm going to tell you what I'm convinced of, and then you have to go find what you're convinced of. I don't expect us all to think alike, but I do expect us all to be able to love alike. And there's, that's a diff- very different proposition. So for him, this doesn't make any sense. But as I tell you what I'm convinced of, and I also am telling you what contemplatives have been convinced of that I have read over the millennia, what they say is, that when it comes to these very existential issues, these spiritual issues, becoming free is exactly the same as becoming free from your thoughts. We have to start there. If we don't become free from our thoughts, then we can't find that deeper connection that connects us universally to everyone and everything and to our God as well. We have to become free from our thoughts. Like Jack Reacher, we have to be willing to let them go, to drop them like the dirty clothes in the Goodwill basket instead of washing them, right? Just buy new ones. We have to be willing to do that. And we have to learn what freedom feels like without those thoughts, without that worldview, without those habitual and compulsive thought and behavior patterns. But unlike Jack Reacher, we just don't stay there in that place. We have to have thoughts. Of course we do. 
We have to be able to interface with everyone. We have to be able to learn from the past and plan for the future. But the difference is we can learn not to be attached to them anymore. They no longer define us. They no longer control us, obsess us. We have thoughts, but our thoughts don't have us. Very big difference. Another friend emailed me and asked me to write my personal epistemology for him. When was the last time you were asked to write a personal epistemology? <laughs> this was my first time, you know, and uh, we're going to talk more about this next week. This is where we're going to pick up next week because uh, we're running out of time here. But uh, epistemology is, is the branch of philosophy that has to do with the theory of knowledge. How do we know what we know and what can we know? So that's what he's basically asking me. You know, how do I know what I know? How do I think I even know what I know and what can I know? And all those kind of basic really deep questions. For now, though, the point that I want to try to get across is that thoughts and words cannot know what is beyond thoughts and words, what is beyond the physical rules of nature, what is beyond the finite mind and logic itself, reason. How can we know that? And everything that is spiritual, everything that is God, by definition, stands outside of all that. Our thoughts can't take us there. God, spirit, love exists beyond words, beyond conception. On the other side of the eye of the needle that Jesus is talking about, that the rich person cannot go through because the rich person is still attached to possessions, still attached to the thoughts that keep him or her from seeing what needs to be seen to actually get to that freedom. To know what we can't understand is to free ourselves of anything that is too big to go through the eye of that needle. And fear is always too big. So any thoughts that we have that are creating fear, by definition, are untrue and unfree. And Jesus is trying to get us to shed those. And which are they? Which are those thoughts that are untrue and unfree? Well, we can't know until we drop them all. It's like one of those allergy tests, right? You stop eating everything, and then you introduce it one by one back and see you know, where you get the rash. Until we drop everything or are willing to let go of everything, as Jesus says, sell it all and give it away. Then come follow me. Then we can start to see which of our thoughts, which of our beliefs are part of our freedom and which are part of our fear. And then we can actually do something about it. This is Jesus' way to truth and life. This is Jesus' only way to the Father and to finding the feel of our freedom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, all we can do is, is be grateful again for sitting here, for being able to talk about this. But at the same time, if we realize that there is something more, if we realize that we still have unfinished business, if we realize there are still parts of our lives that are obsessive, compulsive, and limiting, if we do feel unfree, and that there are breakthroughs that we need to have, help us to think about this, to think about freedom, and where it comes from, and what it would look like in our lives, unattached to circumstances, 
and what it takes for us to actually get there. And if we're unwilling still, if there's too much inertia or resistance, to start to understand what it's going to take for us to trust you enough to take those first steps, to do everything that it takes, to leave no stone unturned, because we want to be as complete as we can be in any given moment. So give us that courage, Lord. Give us that divine dissatisfaction, the blessed unrest that motivates us and keeps us moving further into your embrace. That's what we want, Lord, day by day. Thank you for always drawing us. Thank you for never giving up on us, for your love and your constancy. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.